Hello and welcome to Access Chat. I'm really pleased that we're bringing to the show today Marcy Roth, who is the relatively recent newly appointed CEO of World Institute on Disability. This is not the first time we've had World Institute on Disability on, but um, it's the first time that we have welcomed Marcy in her role. Uh, and I thought that it was particularly important to bring Marcy on uh, right now because of Marcy's background in uh, disasters and emergency preparedness. Um, given that we're in the middle of several disasters and emergencies all, all simultaneously, it seemed like a, an opportune moment to, um, to have a conversation. So um, welcome, Marcy. Please tell us a little bit more about yourself. Of course, Deborah and I know you because we're, we're board members. Um, and proud to serve on the the board of this great organization but uh tell us you know a, a bit about your 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 background because you bring a wealth of experience well thank you and uh thank you very much for uh, having me it's wonderful to be a part of uh this great work that you all are doing um a little bit about me um i've always worked in disability rights uh, from, you know, very early on uh, um, in uh, high school. And it became very clear to me um, early on that uh, the rights of people with disabilities were being, were totally disregarded. And uh, over the years, I've had lots and lots of opportunities both as a person with a disability myself, um, as a parent of now two uh, adult uh, children with disabilities, and um, as a part of my uh, just you know daily existence, um, you know, I, I, disability rights has just always been um, fundamentally a part of who I am. Um, I've worked at the local level, state level, national level, globally. Uh, but in uh, 2001, uh, immediately following the terrorist attacks in the U.S., um, I found myself uh, being looked to for guidance on how people with disabilities in uh, New York City um, could... Uh, uh, be um, continue the supports and services that they need um, when they had sort of cordoned off the uh, area around Ground Zero. And, you know, after many, many years of working in disability services and disability rights, I had never really thought about what happens for people with disabilities in disasters. And, um, uh, you know, that... Uh, um, period uh, began what for me was a almost 20 year journey in which uh, my focus uh, became really um, very much on uh, what happens before, during, and after disasters. Uh, had the great opportunity in um, 2009 to. Uh, Join the Obama administration as senior advisor to the um, uh, FEMA uh, uh, administrator, 
FEMA is the uh, Federal Emergency Management Agency in the U.S., and my role there was to begin to reform the uh, process by which the uh, U.S. federal government and all of the government um, uh, plan for, um, prepare, respond, and then engage in uh, recovery um, when there's a disaster. So uh, spent a number of years in the government trying to improve that process. And by improve it, uh, meaning that uh, we engage people with disabilities as subject matter experts, as our guides in what it's going to take for people to be included before, during, and after disasters. Um, spent uh, almost eight years working on that and uh, left FEMA, started an organization called the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, spent uh, uh, several years there building a, um, a, a, a national and global uh, partnership with many, many uh, stakeholders uh, working, again, specifically on uh, public health emergencies and disasters. And then uh, a few months ago, I had the incredible opportunity to uh, join the uh, World Institute on Disability as the uh, executive director and CEO. And uh, so um, uh, now having been at WID for about eight months, um, have uh, really uh, had an incredible uh, journey forward as we, um, you know, uh, refresh and uh, move the organization forward, uh, including some new areas of work that I'm guessing you'd love to talk about. So, so um, both Deborah and I were part of this, this whole sort of recruitment process. And uh, you know, whilst you know, disasters and emergencies uh, was a, an area that was previously covered by uh, by weird as an area of expertise, none of us that were doing the selection could have envisaged uh, what was going to hit us only a few months later. You know, we okay, so we we all been expecting some pandemic at some stage. You know, we thought it might have been the bird flu or or whatever, but but when it hits, no one's ever fully prepared. And then on top of that, we've had. Uh, you know, significant political events compounding the issues of um, you know the the lockdown and the economic impacts and the isolate. There are so many issues that that directly impact people with disabilities that are um, not thought about in the response to uh, to COVID nineteen or in the response to how we're dealing with the political issues that are arising around the world. And and then on top of that, in the last couple of weeks, you know, we've, we've seen all of the protests going on as a result of, um, you know, this, this systemic uh, 
racism and which is also mapped uh, and and equaled with ableism because you you alluded to the um the ignoring of our rights because whilst we have as a community acquired rights over the years they're often not applied so how uh, how are you firstly coping with all of this stuff and what does it mean in terms of what can WID offer and what can the disability community offer and also how do our I'm asking you too many questions. This is a, this is a whole load of stuff. Bring them on. <laughs> uh, well, right, I'll, I'll stop there. I mean, and, and say, you know, so so what are the some of the some of the, the things that you're doing to address the you know the amazing conflux of you know significant crises mm-hmm. right now? I will begin by saying, uh, you know, for the organization. Uh, when I came on board, I asked the team, so, you know, what's our continuity of operations plan? Because that's something that, you know, I've done a lot of work in. And just like just about everybody else, uh, no surprise, folks hadn't really yet figured out uh, what a continuity of operations plan is how you accomplish that, what's needed. So we were already sort of starting down that road. I asked the question, uh, how are we dealing with remote operations? Excuse me. And, um, you know, we have a, a, you know, fairly uh, large team at the WID headquarters in uh, Berkeley, California. And then we have a few remote workers. And I think at the time that I asked the question, uh, you know, folks were quite insistent that um, there were things that just had to be done uh, in a a physical uh, setting. And I kind of pushed back and said, well, I'd really like to, you know, do as much as we can to, um, move things to remote operations where we can. Um, I remember having a conversation at the beginning of March when we were first starting to see that, uh, you know, some sort of a shutdown was going to be necessary. And, um, you know, I remember asking the question, okay, what do we need to do to shut down and move to a remote operation? Happily, by that point, we had figured just about everything out. So as an organization, um, we were in a position to pretty seamlessly continue to operate. Um, Early in March, uh, the organization had, our board had approved our strategic plan that had been under development since um, uh, just a couple of months before. And we had, uh, among our uh, uh, domains, uh, primary areas of focus for the organization, we had uh, determined that we were going to be focusing on emergency preparedness, disaster risk reduction, and climate resilience um, as a focal point of of, uh, some of our work. 
<clears throat> and so um, we had, uh, you know, literally the, the, the ink was not dry on that decision. And uh, we had the beginnings of a year-long plan to uh, start to operationalize some of that. And uh, within days, we had to throw that plan into overdrive. So, you know, I can talk a little bit more about what that's looking like for us, but uh, to answer some of your other questions as I sort of uh, do the deep dive into this, um, uh, you know, immediately uh, we joined with a number of other disability organizations uh, and started to look at what we knew were going to be some of the um, uh, most uh, difficult uh, elements. And um, we, uh, late in February, uh, WID joined with the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies, the National Council on Independent Living, and about 180 other organizations who signed on to a uh, call to action around um, what we were anticipating uh, was going to be um, uh, a, a very difficult, a disproportionately difficult uh, circumstance for people with disabilities. Some of the issues, uh, first and foremost, and this is something we're struggling with today, <clears throat> there is a, um, a continual focus uh, by governments and media to refer to um, the people who are most disproportionately impacted as being people who are older and people who have what are fondly referred to as having underlying conditions. And, um, you know, uh, these are code for disability. Um, everybody who has uh, underlying conditions is a person with a disability. And so, um, uh, and the disproportionality of um, the impact of the virus um, has really been centered on people who are living in uh, long-term care facilities, uh, congregate settings, and um, uh, as sh shockingly, horrifyingly high as those numbers are, what folks are not uh, um, acknowledging is the, you know, 30,000 people plus, plus, plus who have died here in the U.S., for example, in nursing homes and other long-term care facilities. Everybody keeps referring to them as, you know, um, uh, older. Well, in fact, you don't go to a nursing home because you're old. You don't go into a facility, a congregate facility, because you're old. You go because you have a disability, and the supports and services that you need 
in order to continue to maintain your health, your safety, your uh, independence, your dignity are unavailable um, out in the community. And for that reason, uh, you've been uh, institutionalized. And so we have uh, tens of thousands of people in just a few weeks who've lost their lives. Um, yeah, and we see it on, on social media. We, you know, there are people disappearing from our, uh, from our, our world you know, that have been advocates and, and so on. I think one of the points that I would like to bring up around this is the innate ableism, the innate ableism in the messaging that's coming out. It's like, oh, don't worry, it's not about you. You're not going to have, you know, it's not not so much of a problem for you. It's only for you know older people and people with pre-existing conditions. So it's like, yeah. So um, basically, that's a statement that you don't care about our elders and our disabled communities. It's like. It's not you that's going to die, so don't worry. That's not really the kind of messaging I would, you know, want to hear from from my government. But that's the kind of messaging that we have heard. Uh, and and in the UK too, we've had many thousands of deaths and excess deaths in in care homes. You know, and I and I think it's the the excess deaths that are really telling because we measure an excess desk because people always die in, in care homes. You know, it's part of the nature of, of, uh, of those places. But the issue is that so many more people are dying and so much more rapidly. And the, the fact that we were in the UK actually discharging people from hospital into care homes without testing them for COVID-19. Mm-hmm. So we were, we, we were literally sending the virus into the places where people were most vulnerable. And that was a government policy. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that, to me, is, is unforgivable. Uh, and clearly, you know, that policy has innate ableism in it. And normally I'm a positive person. I talk about the positives and that what we can do um, and how we can you know, build on stuff and build communities. But the last few months, we've really seen uh, how little people value people with disabilities. That's right. We have seen something I think many of us feared might be true, but hoped that we had made enough progress, Um, but, you know, it is very clear that um, people with disabilities, our value, um, the value of older people, the value of uh, people of color, the value of a very large number of most of us um, has been othered. And um, uh, a very small number of people who are not directly impacted 
um, have an amazing amount of power and we've done a very difficult, I mean, we've done a very poor job of um, moving, moving the needle on that. And, you know, as, as you said, Neil, um, you know, you're, you're usually uh, focusing on the positive. Uh, I do want to talk about opportunity. Um, I don't know that things could be much worse than they are. Uh, never want to say never. Um, and I'm quite sure that uh, the current circumstances are unbelievably bad for many, many people. Um, but I also think you know, we have three choices right now. We can keep doing what we've been doing. We can, you know, kind of stay stuck right where we're at. We can always go back to the way we were doing things or we can choose to move forward. And as people with disabilities, um, I, for one, am calling on all of us to use this as a call to action to change, um, to make a fundamental difference. And I think it starts with um, not accepting the status quo. It starts with uh, reaching a hand forward, reaching a hand back, uh, bringing folks to our tables to talk about this stuff, to, you know, to be angry, to be sad, to be very honest with each other in a kind way. Honest, but kind, not pitting ourselves against each other. And, you know, we know, uh, you know, the World Institute on Disability has held now two town hall meetings. Uh, our second town hall meeting was yesterday. Uh, we had uh, folks from 25 countries, uh, every continent except for Antarctica. We're working on that. Um, bringing folks together to talk about disaster and disability. And we've been listening very carefully to horrifying stories. Um, we will continue to listen, but we are in a position to do something about it. And whether it's uh, working with business and industry around um, the anticipated loss of uh, the 
growth that we've made in employment for people with disabilities, whether it's around the um, progress that we've made in assistive technology that may slow down because the economy has been hit so hard. You know, whatever, whatever it is, we are in a position to uh, come together and start to build uh, solutions that are, that benefit the resilience of the whole community. One of the things that uh, the World Institute on Disability is uh, in the process of launching is a global uh, disaster. Um, we're, we're calling it, it, we haven't actually rolled it out yet, but we are in the process of rolling out the Global Alliance for Disaster Resource Acceleration. So we are going to use disasters, COVID, concurrent disasters, future disasters, because heaven knows they're going to come. We're going to use those as opportunities to bring funders, disability leaders, emergency managers, other stakeholders together, led by people with disabilities, led by disability-led organizations with a focus on accelerating resources in disasters to the places where they're needed the most. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that a little bit more. I think Deborah's got, I think Deborah's got a question. Please. Well, and I, I, I apologize for getting upset on camera. My, I have a husband with dementia and watching what's happening in the United States is just really hard, but also, I think the opportunity here is for, in the first place, for us to really see this, for us to really see what is happening. And very proud to be on the board of WID, as is Neil. And um, I was one of the, you know, I'm on the executive board, but, you know, this really, this keeps going on. And I'm not talking about just COVID. We we don't appreciate who people are. We don't appreciate all the intersectionalities of uh, of being a human being. And so I really am glad that WID is taking a leadership role. I glad, I'm glad that WID is focusing on more than the United States. I think the world is seeing, believe it or not, there's more than the United States. The United States is a beautiful, amazing uh, just a wonderful country in so many ways. We see we're seeing the the underbelly of the United States, but the reality is it is not the same in the United States for someone like me, a Caucasian woman of you know medium you know economic, as it is for my fellow African Americans, as it is for you know my my team members that are African Americans and disabled, mm -hmm. and the misinformation, the fake news, the ridiculousness, the fighting at the time, the, the what we're doing to protest. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, what we're doing to protesters, what we are doing to um, 
to, to undermine what, what our government is doing to undermine the free speech that we've fought so hard for. And for people with disabilities, we are, we, we are still not enjoying free speech. And here we are with um, our, our very basic rights, our very basic human rights being threatened. Yeah, and it's a it's tremendous. Uh, it's a tremendously febrile atmosphere that we're in at the moment. And I, picking up on Deborah's point, I I, I feel angry about what has happened to, to people, what is continuing to happen to people, how uh, you know, people in power are manipulating a situation that is costing people's lives for their own personal gain. And this is, this is you know, not, in one, not just happening in one country, it's being, uh, the crisis is is being utilized to further extremism around the world and and erode people's rights um, but also as someone as a six foot something blue eyed white anglo saxon male me expressing my outrage is i i i'm conflicted about it because I want to express my outrage at what's happening, but at the same time, I don't want my voice to drown out the voices of people who really need to express their outrage, who really are the ones in the front line and are being um, persecuted and uh, shot at with rubber bullets. And uh, I'm sat in a comfortable place in leafy Surrey with a, uh, a job. So I can't really no, no, complain. No. We need your voice. We, that's a mistake but, but, we keep making. We keep making so that mistake, right, but, that we, right. our voices don't matter. So, no, and, I'm happy to add yeah. my voice. But yeah. I don't want to do it to this. I, I don't want it to become virtue signaling, you know, because it's right. not about that. And, and, and it's finding that line between expressing your support and your outrage and virtue signaling and then actually finding, actually thinking about how can I, uh, you know, do things that really go beyond saying I'm outraged? You know, yes, I can, I can read the literature. I can, you know, go and, uh, you know, engage with and, and learn from people. But what else can I do? You know, can I, how can I support the, 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 the communities that, that suffer this systemic prejudice? Because... Uh, it is systemic. It's built into the system. And if anything, the system is really kicking in hard right now. Yeah. So uh, so those are the questions I'm asking myself. And, and you know, and I hope that the, or there are organizations that, 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 you know, that WID and the coalition can help and, and that we can work with people that, inter, you know, that intersectionally suffer very similar issues to, to the disability community. I won't claim to to be the one suffering because I'm not, but I, but I am outraged by it. Well, what, 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 
Go what on, I okay. see is a kind of a clear divide between countries with empathy and countries without empathy. You know, some countries with very that don't have that many resources, uh, they are not on the G7 or on the G20. Uh, they are just driving on empathy, and they are able to do a lot. Other countries are known as being, you know, leaders have been very, you know, doing doing everything well on the finance side. You know, they don't have that, but on the other end, they have no empathy for their elderly, and then they use the the excuse of age or caring homes to dehumanize people. You know, oh, they are, you know, they don't matter. They are not part, and they, and and this is the divide that I that I I've seen that I see quite worrying. And, and then sometimes uh, the media helps and supports that kind of a message and normalize it, that message within a certain society. In other societies, the media would turn against and they will have a voice and then a balance is being kept. So I can give you a, a, an example. Um, in Portugal, they enlarged the support to everyone that is in the country to be supported if they have needs, if they are sick, they will have full access to healthcare. Now, independently, you, you know, even if you are someone here and you are illegal, you have access to that. In other countries like Australia, if you are a student, a foreign student, please leave the country. You know, we, we can't support you. So I've seen, you know, it's it's not about you know, it's about attitude and empathy. I think that's what's making the difference here. And two points I want to make. One is, I thought we were here in the U.S. I thought we were that empathetic country. I didn't necessarily think we were getting it all right. As a matter of fact, I was quite sure we were not getting it all right. (laughs) But I thought that we were, um, that, that that was who we were aspiring to be. And Marcy, Marcy, that is who we are. It's just not who our leaders are. And it's not who our processes. We we are not being as empathetic as we thought we were going to be. And I know I'm a dork sitting crying like a you know, but this is really ridiculous. And I'm trying to explain it to my husband with dementia who this is, I don't know how to explain it. How do I explain it to my daughter? I don't know. This is ridiculous, but most people in the United States are beautifully empathetic. We're the first people out to help, but we're real broken. Yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Marcy. No, no, no. no. And you're absolutely right about that. It's, it's not, uh, it is not our people. It is our government and um, I think we've all been shocked. Well, we haven't all been shocked. Many of us are shocked by what's unfolding. Um, I, you know, the, 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 the thing that I'm struggling with is, well, I'm struggling with a lot of things, but... Um, I want to do better. I want to be better. And at the same time, I'm really uncomfortable with this idea that now 
I need to look to my husband who happens to be black to uh, the other black and brown people in my life and sort of, you know, I'm not hearing folks saying, I'm hearing people saying, uh, you people of privilege need to shut up and listen to us. But I'm not hearing them say, uh, and it's now our responsibility to, to, you know, explain it. It's not, it's, it's now not, we haven't somehow, um, put the burden, put an additional burden on people of color to now um, be the ones to help us to figure it out. So just the same as it's not okay for us to tokenize people with disabilities, it's not okay for us to sort of, you know, check a box that we've got somebody who has a particular look or somebody who um, has some sort of a visible disability. It's not their responsibility to be our, um, our example. Uh, at the same time, I think we also need to figure out how to authentically um, listen without being... Um, ridiculous in the process, you know? Um, And it's conversations like these, except we need to have other folks in these conversations helping us without burdening them, helping us to identify what it is that we can do to help. As a spouse of somebody with dementia, on the one hand, you know, we need to know what you and your husband need. But we also need to be careful we're not burdening you with the responsibility to make it okay for us. Um, As a person with a disability who, um, you know, it's starting to look like I have become one of the homebound, um, you know, I'm not going to be able to go out anytime soon. Uh, you know, I, I am almost definitely one of those people who will die if I get this virus. Almost definitely. Although as somebody who has been taking hydroxychloroquine for 10 years, um, you know, I may have some sort of, you know, special powers, but on the assumption that I don't, um, you know, I'm probably going to need to stay home for a very long time. So we talked about we talked about the, the, the choice of language uh, with Martin Sibley not long ago. And he said, I don't want to be considered vulnerable. I'm high risk. <sighs> Yeah, and I and I think that's that's right. You you have a high risk. You know, you're not you're not a vulnerable person. You know, you have you have a, a disability, and there is a high risk of you um, being disproportionately affected by this virus. And 
you know, I love talking about language, um, and I, I really welcome the fact that you raised this. Um, we are doing such a disservice by through lumping so many people under the um, vulnerable umbrella because uh, in a disaster, whether it's a public health emergency like a pandemic, whether it's an earthquake, you know, name your emergency or, or disaster, we're all vulnerable, but we're vulnerable because the failures of our infrastructure, we're vulnerable because of the failures of our uh, government and those who have a responsibility to be inclusive in their planning. Um, I'm not inherently vulnerable, quite the opposite. Um, you know, as a person with a disability, as a parent, uh, I am, um, I am so good at anticipating problems and, uh, solving, finding solutions. Um, you want me, I'm an asset. I'm not a liability, right? You want me as a part of your planning team. I am not vulnerable unless you plan without me, unless I am excluded and not given the resources that I need in order to be able to be an asset in my community. Everybody can be a force multiplier. Everybody has a role to play before, during, and after disasters. And communities that get that right are the communities that are the most resilient. Um, and the risk factors for me are, you know, sure, uh, you know, because of my disability, because of my health conditions, because of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, sure, I do, in fact, have some significant risk. But my risk has been significantly impacted by the failure of the um, government to address this pandemic at the front end. Our failure, the failure of our government to give our communities, the tools and the resources that we've needed, the political gaminess that has resulted in the denial of uh, personal protective equipment for some communities, yeah. apparently based on some political decisions, based on some, you know, uh, ill-gotten gain. Yes, indeed. Right. Uh, we're, we're, and we're seeing similar uh, failures in, in our own, in, in the UK too, where um, we've huge numbers of deaths and many of them are unnecessary because we've taken political decisions. Um, for example, the fact that we've decided, taken a political decision to open up our uh, economy and come out of lockdown when we're not really prepared. We haven't got the contact tracing in place where, you know, 
all of these kind of things. They're political decisions mm -hmm. that that are going to result in people's death um, that are unnecessary because we haven't been prepared and we've also decided that this is, you know, serving an agenda. Mm -hmm. I, I, I could talk about this for a lot longer. Unfortunately, we have to, to close. But I'd like to thank you know, the people that keep us going here, the Barclays Access, the MicroLink, the, the MyClearText for keeping us captioned and accessible. Um, sorry, lovely corporate people, if we got a bit political today, I'll uh, make it up to you later. Um, but, but you know, these are tough times. And, and, and you know what, I'm not talking about party affiliations here. I'm talking about, you know, failures of our system, the failures of our checks and balances. You know, it's, it's, it's more than just party politics. So thank you, Marcy, because um, it's been a rich conversation. Um, and I'm sure that we're going to have a very rich conversation on Twitter. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you so much for including me, for peeling back the layers of this onion with me a little bit. And, uh, you know, I welcome uh, continued robust discussion and the, the call to action that we all need yes. to be taking right now. Um, we can continue to make the same mistakes and then be shocked by the fact that we're getting the same results, or we can use this as an opportunity. I, and we, we need to stay with it until we fix it this time. We can't, this keeps happening over and over and over again, and we cannot keep ignoring it and going back to sleep and thinking that this is going to go away. We have to have the will to resolve these issues. We all have to have the will. That's right. That's right. I'm in. Count, count me in. That's okay. Thank you, Marcy. Thank, Thank you, you all very much. Thank Be you. well. Take care.